Support for Access Utah comes from Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, now open Monday through Saturday until 2, offering a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Thank you for joining us on this new week. Perhaps your Christmas gift was a cool new gadget, uh, something in the technology field. Perhaps, uh, as is typical, it's already broken. Or you don't know how to work it, you need some advice. Well, we're here to help. Jonathan Choate with SD7 Technology Group, our technology effort, uh, expert, is in to uh, help us. We'll talk about the uh, latest and greatest uh, cool gadgets. I'm looking at a site here talking about a wearable video camera. Just uh, some of the things that are out there. seems like technology marches forward. We'll talk about where best to store your photos and other media as well and the, the hot new trend in 3D printing. All of that on tap. The number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495 if you'd like to call, get some advice from Jonathan Choate. In the second half of the program, by the way, Michael Souter, associate professor of English in the USU English Department, is out with a new book of poetry, House Under the Moon. She describes as a book of spiritual meditation poems interspersed with poems of wilderness, family, and fatherhood. We'll hear some poetry from Michael Souter coming up in the second half of the program. Jonathan Choate, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Uh, so I'm always interested in the latest and greatest cool new gadgets, um, wearable video camera. That reminds me of a, we were promised, uh, at least I remember reading a year or two ago, of wearable keyboards, wearable uh, uh, you know, uh, computer technology. I don't know where we are with that sort well, of thing. Well, those types of things are coming. You know, they come in they come in phases. So we're always talking about, when we talk about the new stuff that nobody has, it's usually, you know, the it's just like every uh, construction project is always two weeks. It's always five years. Whether it's <laughs> one or ten, doesn't matter. When you're talking about it, it's always five years from now before the products will be out. So there are actually some, um, you know, wearable keyboards and things like that that are out there. But at this point, they're still more novelties than anything. Mm. They're not practical enough for actual use because you have a wearable keyboard, but you don't really have a wearable computer and a wearable screen and a wearable everything else that you need. Mm. So, so what's actually here, not five years away? Well, uh, displays and uh, cameras are the are you know, and then of course our phones. Mm. We don't really think of our our smartphones as wearable com- or you know por- computers. But they are, to a degree. They're far more powerful than your average desktop from 10 or 15 years ago. So they are, um, you know, they're a computer. They're doing a lot of the things they, you know, that we expect a computer to do. Now, our computers have advanced to the point where they're not good enough to fill that role. But they're they're coming in in a lot of ways. Mm. Um, but you have, you know, goggle-type screens that are out. Um, they're still pretty big and bulky. They still um, are tethered to power. They have battery, but they doesn't last very long. Um, so again, those are more of a, a niche item. They're going to be you want to have it in your game room or something like that. But um, uh, they're also the the thing with the goggle type of displays is they're working on um, Google, especially, is putting en- uh, effort into this called augmented reality. So it's not virtual reality, it's augmented reality. And the purpose of that is to use, have you ever used, I think it's called, I can't even remember the name of the application now, I think it's Google Goggles. 
I've never used that. No. Um, and what it lets you do is it lets you use the camera, and it takes your GPS positioning data, and it looks at the picture, and it tries to compare it to Street View data and the GPS data, and it, it tries to work out exactly what you're looking at. And then it gives you information on it. So let's say you use it to look at a restaurant. Well, that re- it would then come up with, potentially, you know, if it was there, the menu and the phone number and the hours of operation, etc., on that restaurant, all from just opening it up and essentially taking a picture with it. So rather than having to do that with your phone, the augmented reality glasses have a camera. They have the, the uh, GPS information out of your phone, etc. And they do the same thing all the time to everything you're looking at. Hmm. So they're providing you with additional information um, beyond what, uh, you know, what you, what, you know, what's there. Hmm. So it really is kind of a cool technology. It's not really available for the masses yet. And, uh, but they were actually debuting those goggles at one of the recent Google tech, um, technology, I think they call it the Google innovation show, um, just this last year. Hmm. So, so once this gets refined, this would look like regular glasses, but not you're... quite think of them hmm. more like bulky sunglasses type okay. of a thing. Because um, you do have to have a battery in there. You've got to have a camera. So they're fairly sleek compared to what we think of as the big headgear we've seen in the past. But they're not your slim little glasses. Mm. Um, not quite. Yeah. Maybe if, maybe another generation will yeah. get there. <laughs> what would be the practical everyday application for this? You, you just want to view your screen just in your glasses, hands-free sort of a thing. Is that yeah, it's sort of a hands-free, but again, it's not your whole screen. You're, mm-hmm. It's not acting as a monitor. But think of it like you're going on vacation. You're going somewhere you're not familiar with. Um, you can put these on and look around and get information. Like you can, you can set it up to provide you with reviews of places. So you go into a restaurant district and you scan around and something comes up. Uh, oh, well, that place has got four out of five stars, and it serves this kind of food, et cetera, just simply by looking at the outside of the restaurant. Mm. So it, the uses are really up to the consumer to decide what they want to do with it. But um, the more information that's out there, it's a way to bring that information in a timely and useful manner to the consumer. Mm. I, I could see some downsides here, too. I'm, I, I get uh, frustrated with people who... Uh have the earbuds in. Yeah, it's going to be a lot They're not worse talking than that. to me. Now they won't be looking at me, but they'll be looking at something now, else. Now, fortunately, you're seeing through it, yeah, which okay. is actually where it's better than people walking down the sidewalk texting mm-hmm. because they're looking down and they're looking at a screen. With this, it is putting the screen information in your field of view, but it's, it's, um, translucent okay so you're seeing through it and you still see what's going on now does that mean people are paying attention around them probably not mm. but they could if they chose right to. right <laughs> so that trend continues uh, people not paying attention to what's around them jonathan chode is with us our computer expert if you have a computer technology question uh that's certainly welcome at 1-800-826-1495 toll free anywhere you are 1-800-826-1495 or you can email us a question upraxis at gmail.com. We're going to uh, bottom of the hour with Jonathan Choate. Uh, so now's the time to get into your question. We'd uh, love to have it. Uh, upraxis at gmail.com or 1-800-826-1495. What about this wearable video cam? This is uh, a trend of a hands-free sort of a thing. Also fits into a trend of uh, everybody's their own producer. Everybody is is taking video and posting that online. We're we're all television producers nowadays. Well, there has been, the last couple of years, there's a, a good unit that's out there that's designed for sports, particularly extreme sports. It's called the GoPro. 
and it's in a waterproof well they have some different versions but it's in a waterproof case and it's designed for something like taking it up skiing with you or skydiving or something of that nature um and you you see a lot of pictures you know a lot of the extreme videos that get passed around where somebody's skydiving or they're actually wearing a headgear type camera and so it's mounted to the head and the camera's seeing whatever you see um it, so for that type of a scenario where you actually need both of your hands to participate in whatever activity you're doing, it's, you know, they're, they're a great thing. Uh, river rafting, et cetera, et cetera. All sorts of um, scenarios, sports-wise and extreme sports-wise particularly, where it's useful. Now, they're taking that trend um, and moving it more towards, well, hey, anybody can wear this. Why do you have to be doing something, you know, fun and exciting? Why can't you just be putting the camera on 24 hours a day, seven days mm-hmm. a week? Which is just too much information, in my opinion. But, hey, everybody has (laughs) their own. (laughs) And then that goes to your own channel, I guess. And if you have people that are interested in everything you're doing, they could view that. And, again, a lot of the impetus for technologies like that are phones. Because the the, the data connection is fast enough to handle the streaming data. um, And you've got, you know, you have enough power in there to handle the flow of data. You know, you have a camera. And that sends information, but it's got to send it to something. It's either going to record it internally, um, or it will send it to a device through Bluetooth or through a cable. And that device, if you have it configured correctly, will then feed it to the Internet, and you can get a live broadcast from anywhere that you have a decent um, data connection. Hmm. Uh, we saw some of the first uh, versions of this. They were more homebrew, you know, just an actual camera that somebody mounted themselves and they attached it to a streaming Wi-Fi. I saw a couple instances of it during the, um, you know, some of the Occupy Wall Street stuff that was going on a couple of years ago. There was a couple of, you know, blogger type reporters who went out into the fray with their own live cameras and just recorded everything that was going on. Mm. So in that type of a scenario from a reporting thing, that's a, that's a great use of the technology. Um, from a watch what my cats do all day, I think you can probably find something better to do. <laughs> but true. again, that's, that's up true. to the consumer to decide mm-hmm. what they want to do with the technology. Yeah. And you just reminded me, the, uh, the reference to the reporter, this is having geopolitical, great geopolitical uh, impact. Uh, now, totalitarian regimes, for example, you can't gloss over everything because one guy with a with a camera. Yeah, the... the uh, preponderant i mean there are just so many cameras out there that it is it is changing the behavior people are now expecting particularly those who are politicians or uh, police or uh, you know those in the high profile scenario you simply have to expect that you are being recorded 24 hours a day even potentially in the confines of your own home Mm -hmm. which is that that's where it definitely gets way too far but um you're really not anonymous if you're doing something that becomes noteworthy. Mm-hmm. And uh, perhaps the camera can't reach into the inner recesses of your home, but a lot of people are sending out information. But that's the thing. They may be doing it themselves and yeah. not even realizing how important what mm-hmm. they're doing is. They have their own webcams. They have their own, you know, you're making video camera stuff all the time. And if you're high profile enough and cameras are small enough, visitors may bring them in without your knowledge, mm-hmm. etc. So there's a downside to the interconnectedness. There's, there's, there's upsides, always a downside, downsides. Yeah. But I I guess in today's world, I probably can't opt out, can I? No, this is not, it's not necessarily up to you anymore. You can choose not to produce the information. I don't. Um, you know, I used to be a, a fairly big fan of social media, and now I just find it kind of a waste of time. 
you know, you go and check occasional things. You use it for a few odds and ends. But, you know, there's just more important things to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's much the same way. It's some people are choosing to put their efforts into whether you call it their hobby, their job, or because, you know, however you want to describe it, this is what they, their passion they've chosen to do. But you don't have to participate in what they're doing, except for the fact that we're talking about video. So mm-hmm. if you happen to be where they are, you're being recorded. Mm-hmm. And that's where it gets difficult to opt out of. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can become a hermit, you can stay in your own home, and you can have an internet connection, and you're probably okay. Yeah. But that's not really that, that great of a life. So right. you have to interact to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. So how best to protect yourself then? Um, well, as as I've been saying since the birth of the internet, watch what you say at all times. <laughs> Just because you think you, you know, you should be doing this anyway. You should be expecting and always behaving in a manner that would be for public consumption. Now, a lot of people don't. They have their, their private and they have their public personas and they're not the same thing. So just act appropriately at all times and you'll you won't have anything to worry about, mm-hmm. first of all. I mean, that's not necessarily technology advice. That's You should just be doing that anyway. Um, but pay attention, I think, is the key. Um, and, I mean, there's not really a lot you can do other than paying attention to what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe don't if you don't want to be on camera, don't go places where you'd expect people to be, be there with the camera. But for those who want to do it, the main thing I would say is don't live feed uh that's just a bad idea. You know, things happen outside of your control. Stuff's going to go out, and once it goes out on the Internet, it never goes away. Mm-hmm. You may think it does, but it's floating out there somewhere for somebody to find in a cache or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, unless, again, you're in a very specific circumstance where it's necessary, like live reporting from an event, it's, you just, just don't do that. Mm-hmm. Record things, put them out. There's all sorts of YouTube channels with lots of creative and interesting things on there. Doing it live all the time is asking for trouble. Again, mm-hmm. that's my opinion, but... Uh, yeah. we're, we're talking with uh, Jonathan Choate, uh, who's with SD7's Technology Group. Uh, he's here to answer your questions, computer and technology questions. Perhaps you got something for Christmas. Don't quite yet know how to work it. Or maybe it's broken already. Yeah, reboot <laughs> and change the batteries. There's your <laughs> first two hints right first there. First two hints. That's always the first <laughs> thing to try. 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. The number... And we have another 10 minutes or so left with Jonathan Choate. Or uh, you can go to upraxis at gmail.com. Upraxis at g- gmail.com. That's our email address. Um, uh, just uh, finishing up with, with this uh, privacy uh, issue, uh, you said, you know, maybe if you don't want to be on camera, you could be aware of where cameras might be. But cameras are they're, really ubiquitous. They're getting they're, smaller. I sometimes will be walking through a building and I'll happen to look up and I see the security camera. Yeah. yeah the security cameras in public it's, places, you're not going to avoid them. Uh, that's There's just no way around that. But it's it's not necessarily about seeing the camera. It's about seeing the behavior of the person with the camera. Hmm. You know, there's cameras on all of our phones, but, you, you know, it's pretty obvious to see somebody pointing that phone at you and you can see that they're trying to follow a certain action. Well, if you see somebody with funny goggles on and they're looking you know, in a deliberate manner, uh, you know, there might be a recording. So, mm-hmm. again, it's it's just awareness, paying attention. Mm. Um, you're not going to avoid everything. It's I, it's just impossible. Again, mm. stay home and be a hermit, and, you, and yeah. you're okay. But right. That's not, <laughs> not going to happen. Not going to happen. Yeah, and, and I've talked to several people who are, you know, maybe in their later middle age. I don't want to call them older, but, uh, you know, friends of mine who uh, are sort of dipping their toe now into the 
you know, getting online and all that stuff at this late date, it, it, it's just illustrative to me that uh, everybody, there's something out there that's of worth to everyone to, to being connected. There, there are, there is, and I think that's why we look at there. There is downsides to every one of these pieces of technology, without a doubt. But there are also major benefits. I mean, we look at. I think back to I began doing you know IT and computer stuff before the internet was publicly available, and I think back to the you know how we tried to do our job, and it feels like uh, you know I'm a caveman using a, a you know a rock hammer tied to a. It's it just such a huge difference in the tools and the availability of information. Um, we just don't realize, because we've become used to it, how great an advantage this is. Um, and so the, the benefits are, are massive. So we always have to, but we always have to pay attention to the negatives. So, but let's not dwell on them. Let's realize that there's a lot of great things about it as well. Um, and you know, try to participate in it, especially, I think, for those in their golden years. Mm-hmm. Um, the ability to communicate with family, uh, you know, who has often moved away. You've got grandchildren, maybe even great-grandchildren. Uh, that ability to, you know, receive that information, to send it out, to get the pictures to follow up is better than ever before. Um, unless you're living in the same home, you're not going to get any better access to being able to see what's going on with family. And, you know, I, for, for some of the people in my family, that's been the impetus for them wanting to get, you know, get connected and learn how to do it. Mm-hmm. I want to, uh, float a couple of questions of my own uh, to you sure. and, and the number to, for you to uh, get your question to Jonathan Jode is 1-800-826-1495. Uh, it occurred to me the other day with the, this deep freeze that we're in. Uh, I have a bunch of my media, for me mostly DVDs and, and CDs. I'm sort of a step behind. Uh, it's in a room that uh, where we've turned, closed the register and it gets a little bit cooler, and I'm wondering, am I causing harm to some of that? Uh... With the optical media, no. Your CDs, your DVDs, they are, other than physical damage of breaking, scratching, they're pretty indestructible, which is, I mean, they're a great medium for long-term storage. Now, if they are a writable type meaning you wrote them yourself rather than they were purchased printed, you'll notice that the, you know, the, the bottom of the disc is a different color. Um, that's because there's a paint inside them. Um, very Well, it's a dye. It's a very particular dye that is, and I'm not going to get too technical because I just realized this could get really geeky. Um, basically, it's pierced with a laser. I mean, that's how it's writable. It's bur- a hole is burned in that with a laser. Now, that dye eventually breaks down over time. Uh, but it's 25 to 30 years, depending upon the media. Some are longer, some are shorter, depending upon the quality. I couldn't tell you one from the other. But it's a, it's quite a, you know, a decent long-time shelf life, much better than your old magnetic media, because it's going to do so without any loss in quality, whereas magnetic media will tend to degrade, and you keep something, but it gets worse and worse over time. Mm. Um, so as far as CDs and DVDs go, I wouldn't worry about it. You can leave them in your car where it gets down super, super cold, and it's not going to hurt them unless you, again, physically shatter them. Mm-hmm. Um, now, computers are somewhat the same way. Uh, cold does not hurt them. In fact, in a way, cold helps them. You know, when they're on, they create a lot of heat. Cold keeps them cool. Uh, the example is my computer this morning I have in front of me. It was sitting in my car all weekend. I forgot to bring my computer bag in, and it was super cold. It was in my car. Brought it in, I turned it on, and my, my screen literally had a, a you know almost a frost covering on it. And there, it's fine. It's not going to hurt anything. 
The one thing to pay attention to, though, on that is the moisture. If you bring a piece of electronics that creates heat in that is very cold and you turn it on, if you don't have, mine is actually, you know, a spill-proof style. It's kind of sealed. So it's designed where it can pick up that condensation because it was cold. The, you know, the moisture in the air gets attached to it, and it won't hurt it. Now, some, that's going to be a problem. So there's your, there's your key. It's the temperature change, not necessarily the temperature. So when in doubt, in a scenario like that, bring the thing in from the cold. Let it sit for a few hours and, you know, come to the average temperature uh, in, in the room before you turn it on. And you may potentially save yourself a headache. Hmm. One other aspect of that, there is one thing that can be susceptible to very cold temperatures, is the hard drive. If you don't have a solid-state disk, if you have the older style with the spinning disk, the motor on there can be susceptible to very cold temperatures. But again, we're talking, you know, the negative Fahrenheit degrees before you're going to cause any issues. Hmm. And on, I'm guessing on the other end, extreme heat is probably a Extreme problem. heat is worse than extreme cold. Um they can't operate in extreme heat because they create heat and they requ- they rely on passive, um, you know, uh, exchanging that heat with the area around you. So if you're operating your desktop computer in a room in, in late July that's 95 degrees because the cooler's broken, you may actually overheat your computer because the difference in temperature from the inside to the outside gets too small and it can't get rid of the heat. Hmm. So heat is a big issue, um, but... Uh, again, it's got to be extreme heat before it's going to bother it. Well, it's reassuring. I've I've sometimes left CDs out, you know, in extreme temperature, cold, so that. Yeah, I would not worry. CDs yeah. and DVDs are getting they're almost indestructible. Yeah. We do have a caller, uh, Mark in Wellsville. Mark, uh, welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you. Uh, go ahead with your question. Hi, Jonathan. Jonathan, um, one of the uh, many uh, things I try to do with my iPhone is sync different uh, um, oh, documents and such with my computer. Mm-hmm. And last night I was doing a large amount of uh, activity on my calendar, and I set up a couple of months' worth of appointments and, and, uh, and such. And when I went to sync, I lost everything on the calendars on the computer and gained nothing on the iPhone. So obviously what I've done is I've somehow... Uh, set things up in my phone, I think, um, that is incorrect. I wondered if you have any experience or advice you could provide me to help reset that. Yeah. Now, I can't tell you, your data of what you had on the calendar may be gone. Um, I would, you know, have to look at it specifically to find out what happened. I'm pretty confident it is. Now, so what to, to avoid this in the future, calendar syncing is actually one of those things that can be very tricky, surprisingly. It seems like a common, hey, everybody, we should be able to sync all our calendars. But calendars often go in different formats. Um, and so they're not cross-compatible without a third-party intermediary in between them. And during those syncing processes, there are a number of settings. And the main one is going to be the direction of syncing and then what to do with data that doesn't match the syncing calendar. Um, and those are uh, those are settings in there. The, what you generally want to make sure you're doing is a two-way sync, where you're pulling and sending information at the same time, unless you have a special calendar where you're just simply publishing information to another location. You only keep track of it in one location and you send it to another one. Like your example would be your iPhone is where you enter your information and your 
Google Calendar is where you want it to email you invites. But you don't ever change anything on your Gmail account. That's just a made-up example right there. That's when you would want to do a one-way sync, which is if I delete something on my phone, I want it to delete it on the calendar. That's why it has the power to, to delete from the other calendar. But I, I don't like to do that personally. I only like to do a two-way sync. Um, it can cause problems. It can cause duplicate entries. It can cause it to be difficult to get rid of things on the calendar. But I think that's a lesser price to pay than the potential of losing information like is what happened to you. And I'm, I'm sorry that that happened. I have seen that before. And uh, again, it's going to be which directions the synchronizing are happening that's the key to what you're to what happened right yeah and i think it's about uh, the default mechanism yeah uh, on the phone which which calendar you're using as your default calendar and i and i agree with you the two ways all i really want i don't have a problem with syncing if i want to update either or go ahead and just plug in and sync it so that they are then accurate together but uh, as far as pushing it each time i enter something uh, that's what you're suggesting uh, that we don't do. Yeah, and, and that's what, unfortunately, you did do. And yeah. so you'll want to check those synchronization settings and turn that off. Now, for the program you're using, apparently that was the default behavior. And I find that a, we'll call it a feature. That's the that's developer speak for a bug. Um, <laughs> that shouldn't have been the default behavior. The default behavior should never be destructive, you know, the ability to lead in, to, to delete information. Um, so I would definitely check those settings and maybe not use that particular application if that was its default behavior. Do you have a, a, a site, a website that you'd suggest to go for help? Uh, Google. Okay. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, I say that right. tongue-in-cheek, but that's the reality is a well-formed search string is going to – there are so many places out there. There's no one place I can tell you where to go because it's going to be unique to your phone application, the calendar you're syncing to. I don't know which calendar type it was. So fill that information out, where you're sending it from, where you're sending it to, how to set up synchronization, and you should find a dozen good answers. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate the call, Mark. Mark uh, called 1-800-826-1495. You're welcome to do so as well. 1-800-826-1495. We have another five minutes or so left with Jonathan Choate with SD7 Technology Group. Another uh, question of, of mine. Uh, while we wait uh, callers' uh, questions, and that is photo storage. Um, you know, some of the photos are very precious, and, uh, you know, a lot of people now are storing those in the cloud, in places like uh, Flickr and PhotoBucket and Snapfish and, uh, and sharing photos, and that's mm -hmm. all very well and good. Um, I'm concerned about the long term, decades from now. I still want to have those photos. It is. Uh, you know, just over this the holiday weekend, um, we did some cleaning out in the garage and found a few old buckets with photos in them. And looking through and some of these photos are, you know, 30 plus years old. And, you know, it was, a you know, spent an afternoon going down memory lane, looking at all this fun stuff. And it did get me thinking about, well, 30 years from now, are people going to be able to find the photos and the videos that they're taking now? We take way more photos than they than used to be done. Um, and there's video. There's so much more recording of what's going on. But are we securing it to where it's going to, you know, have that effect to future generations? And for the most part, the answer is no, we're not. But it can be done with some fairly simple things. Now, the one, the first thing is, is you're not going to put it on a physical medium easily because it's kind of a pain compared to with the simplicity of how we, we take our pictures. So don't expect 
unless you are very diligent, and I know most people aren't, myself included, you're not going to every month take your photos and put them and arrange them and keep only the ones you want because you take thousands of them and you take seven of everything and there's only one you wanted to keep anyway and put burn it onto a CD or a DVD and then label it and archive it. Yes, there are some people who might do that and the technology is out there. But let's face it, we're not actually going to do that, the majority of us. I'm not. I have four years' worth of pictures stored on my phone, and I've never once archived them. So keeping in mind human nature, <laughs> the trick is to automate things and to spread out the risk. So, yes, I have a whole bunch of pictures on my phone, lots of pictures of the kids and lots of pictures of random stupid stuff that doesn't need to be saved. But because of human nature, what I've set it to do is every photo on my phone automatically synchronizes to what's called Dropbox. You take a photo, it sends it to Dropbox, and this is a basically an online storage slash synchronization tool. Love it. It's a great tool. There's, it's free for a small amount of data. You can buy more if you need it. Um, so with Dropbox, what it does is your picture is on your phone. And it will synchronize automatically to the cloud storage, but then to any other devices. As I sat down today, pictures that I had taken over the weekend automatically were synchronizing to my computer here at the studio. And it does it to my desktop at home, and it does it to my desktop at work. And so I have the risk spread over multiple areas so that a hard drive failure or a theft or something like that doesn't lose that information. It's not gone. Now, at some point, I'll have to take and dump that information out and put it in a long-term storage. But nothing's gone because of an accident. Um, you know, I may eventually delete things, but that's my choice. Burn it to a DVD, archive it maybe once every four years instead of once every month to be safe. Mm. So that's the kind of things you have to work around what you're really going to accomplish rather than what's possible. Mm. Uh, so a place like a Dropbox, I imagine easy to go to and easy Very to set simple. that up yep. where it automatically sends and they, it And there's an application you download on your phone, an application yeah. on your desktop. Very easy to do. Then there's other ones like it. That's the one I use, but it's not the only one. Microsoft has SkyDrive. Um, Google has Google Drive. Mm. And I actually use all of them simultaneously. Very good. We reached the end of our time. Uh, Jonathan Choate, SD7 Technology Group, answering our technology and computer questions. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Coming up is uh, poet Michael Souter. He's out with a new book of uh, poetry, House Under the Moon, following the break. Skip the waiting room and join us for another edition of Zorba Pastor on Your Health. You'll get all that great advice without those lousy magazines, plus a heart-healthy recipe for... Mediterranean lamb medley. We always have a great time, so will you on Zorba Pastor on Your Health from PRI, Public Radio International. Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Christopher O'Reilly here, and this week's From the Top is dedicated to folks in your public school. Yeah, I want to thank my high school English teacher. In, in sixth grade, Ohio. Mr. Kramer recognized me as a leader. This song just... goes out to my high school choir director, my role model, and life coach. That's From the Top from NPR. Friday afternoons at 2, Sunday evenings at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Utah Public Radio News, linking listeners living in rural Utah and the state's larger communities through daily newscasts, featuring our 5.30 news during All Things Considered. Utah News focuses on our unique lifestyle. 
for the latest in science, agriculture, art, and religion reporting. And during this election year, UPR News and Access Utah are the most reliable resources for statewide coverage. UPR is your favorite public radio station for statewide news. Thanks for staying with us for Access Utah. We uh, transition from uh, technology and the latest and the greatest to meditation, to fatherhood, family, and wilderness. These are some of the themes of a new collection of poetry from Michael Souter, Associate Professor of English at Utah State University. The book is House Under the Moon. And uh, Michael Souter describes this uh, new collection as a book of spiritual meditation poems interspersed with poems of wilderness, family, and fatherhood. Uh, Michael Souter is also a meditation teacher, a local meditation group he founded, Amrita Sangha, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly or close to that, um, for integ- integral uh, spirituality. And he's done the formed a meditation group at the Cache County Jail. Very interesting. We'll talk about some of these things. Michael Souter, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. By way of transition, we're talking about the, the immediate, the latest and greatest gadgets in the first half of the program. You sort of go in a different direction. Uh, Sure. Meditation, getting away from the, the physical world in, in, in a sense. Yeah, um, actually meditation is kind of a 5,000-year-old technology of uh, inner exploration. And um, <clears throat> excuse me, in ancient India, they've found statues that, um, of, of people seated in meditation in lotus posture that they think are about 5,000 years old. So it's a very ancient kind of technology. And um, what's very cool, though, is more and more scientists are studying meditation in the, in the lab doctors and medical people and, uh, you know, uh, proving many of the benefits that people, yogis have been talking about for thousands of years, you Mm -hmm. know, that meditation, it's good for your body, it's good for your blood pressure, good for your heart. It's good for your mind. It increases your focus, your concentration, all that. It's, um, it's good for your emotions. Um, it's been, uh, proven that, uh, people, longtime meditators report greater feelings of well-being and happiness and joy in their life. Mm And, um, and then it's also a spiritual practice, too. Mm-hmm. So it works on very many levels. And you can teach it on very many levels. Like at the prison, um, <clears throat> we teach it basically as a, a relaxation kind of thing, help people work through stress and help people to uh, calm down and deal with emotions better. And we don't really go into the spiritual side that much. But you can approach it in many different ways. So. I can see where this would be beneficial, for, well, for anyone. But for that's a very stressful situation being in jail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, and and it's really interesting when when we go in there for a class. You, uh, I go in there and sit down, and and the inmates come in, and sometimes some of them will come in, and you can just see in their face uh, anger and uh, you know uh, hurt and uh, stress. And then we go through the practice, and it's an hour-long class, and usually at the end of the class we have some sharing time. And, uh, you know, they leave the class, and, the, and their faces are just brighter and calmer. And, and they say as soon as the class ends, they're looking forward to the following week when we come back. So it's very yeah. rewarding to go and feel like you're making a difference in these people's lives. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. One more question related to uh, the, the previous topic, connecting that up with the meditation. I wonder, in, in your you know, sort of the stereotype is that people more and more are getting connected with their gadgets, with their... Uh, it's a good thing to be interconnected with people. But on the other hand, you, you see uh, people going down the street looking at their looking at their iPhone. Now we have the new technology, which we heard about in the first half of the program, where you might be able to go down the street with your, with your eyeglasses, which are connected to 
<laughs> yeah, and this yeah, seems to sure. me to be the, the total opposite of, of what you're teaching, the meditation and uh, uh-huh. getting centered in, into yourself. Well, it's, it's, it's very interesting, the, the connections, in that uh, people who've been meditating a very long time, what they find is that, or part of the teachings, especially in Buddhism, I, I've practiced in three different contemplative traditions, uh, mystical Christianity and Buddhism and yogic Hinduism. And and all three of them, uh, people report that, that the part of our personality that we call our ego is very much an isolated kind of self. And it's it's surrounded by defenses and um, it's surrounded by a kind of hardening of the heart. And that meditation and contemplative practices, they work to really soften our hearts and open us up. And so it's, it's one of everything on the spiritual path, I feel like, is a paradox. And one of the great paradoxes is that the more we go inward and the more we practice meditation, the more our hearts soften and the more we feel our connection with all of life we feel in our in our when we're not meditating we feel very much our interconnection with other people with plants with animals with uh, everything and so uh, it's one of the fun paradoxes that you know the more we go inward the more we connect with people outwardly this would be uh, i guess a higher interconnectedness um yeah it's kind of a transcendence of the ego it's a transcendence of um, the selfish personality, the self-centered kind of uh, way. It's a transcendence of social conditioning into we get kind of back to a kind of uh, primal or kind of fundamental connection with all of life. I mean, physics and science knows that, that we are not separate, isolated individuals, but actually our life, our breath, our eating, everything, we're connected with the environment around us. And that uh, meditation brings us back into that kind of original relationship with the universe. Mm. If you just joined us, we're talking about this part of the program with Michael Souter, Associate Professor of uh, English at Utah State University's new book of poetry, House Under the Moon, which we describes as a book of spiritual meditation poems interspersed with poems of wilderness, family, and uh, fatherhood. In fact, it's uh, divided into two sections, mm-hmm. right? Um uh, I uh, pull this up, Homecoming and Housekeeping. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, tell us a little <clears throat> bit about this this collection, House Under the Moon. Okay. Well, this collection is um, a collection of poems about my 35-plus years' experience in practicing in the contemplative traditions of, like I said, three world religions, mystical Christianity, Buddhism, and yogic Hinduism. And uh, in my 20s, I almost became a yogic monk, but finally decided that I couldn't quite do that, and I got married instead. And and now I have a family, and uh, as you said, I'm a professor and poet at Utah State. And so this book is very much a uh, is very much about the struggle of combining or maintaining a contemplative life while living a, in a contemporary world of work and family. And so it's kind of a mixture. I was working on two collections. One was a collection of spiritual meditation poems, and one was a collection of family poems. And my wife, Jennifer Siner, also a writer. Um, who is always gives me the best advice. She said, well, why don't you combine those two mm. manuscripts? And so it was a great idea. And, and I think that the, the family poems, I think, kind of ground the spiritual poems, <clears throat> excuse me, and the spiritual poems kind of give some sense of aspiration, I think, to the family poems. Mm. And that's, that is an interesting combination. You mentioned you, <clears throat> you were thinking about becoming a monk, but decided to Go, go family life uh, instead, uh-huh. 
And it seems like in a lot of traditions, the the two are sort of it's either or. It's yeah, a choice. absolutely. Yeah, in in the in traditional Buddhist traditions, there were the monks who are seeking enlightenment, and then there's everybody else who basically their role is to give alms to the monks and support the monks, and then they attain merit, and then supposedly in another lifetime they will. Uh, have a higher birth, and they will themselves become a monk. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are many other, and and then also there's a, a similar tradition in in Christianity of monks and nuns going into convents and monasteries and dedicating their life to meditation and prayer. Whereas the laity, you know, they they're on the outside, and um, and similarly in in yogic Hinduism as well. But there are also um, traditions that combine the two, like the Sufi tradition. I'm a big fan of Sufi poetry and. And the Sufi tradition, the Sikh tradition, several traditions really seek to combine the contemplative life with family life. And um, I guess I'm kind of in that camp. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it sounds like it. And uh, each informs the other, makes mm-hmm. the other richer? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the the place that maybe uh, they really connect is in the place of the heart, you know, because family life is very much a life of um selflessness and a life devoted to love of others and the contemplative life is is similar it's all about opening the heart to love Hmm. let's hear uh, some of the the poems you've selected some from a house uh, under the moon okay um this is this is the first poem that i wrote for this (coughs) excuse me this collection it's called aiden looks at the moon and it goes like this after the bugling of elk dinner by the wood stove we turned in slept till midnight, and then you woke crying, inconsolable. I carried you out of the cabin, across the porch where September poured over us with fragrance of sage, and you were hushed. In the moon lacquered dark, aspens quaked with owls, and I looked at you, awake in my arms, five months old, eyes like pearls staring at the moon, that lantern lighting this field and continent. Your first time to look at the famous orb that lit the plains of Troy, the face implored by Sappho in Sydney that Lee Poe leapt for, drunk and drowning, crone of Whitman, Hecate to Plath, O Ariel, O Huntress, light this boy's nights when he hikes these mountains or comes home late from cards or loving, illuminate his honeymoon and housewarming, And when he grows past all my wanderings, soften his sleepless nights as you have mine. When I walk the house in the dark and find you in a window, reminding me again that beyond whatever carapace of longing or fear I've wrapped around myself, something calls to me from a home where the elk steps in the river. Hmm. Very good. Uh, there, There does seem to be a connection not only with you, but other other writers, between wilderness and spiritual mm-hmm. meditative, yeah, absolutely uh, themes. Yeah, my actually my first book, uh, which was called The Empty Boat, was was much more influenced by Taoism, the ancient Chinese philosophy Taoism, and Taoism is very much a kind of contemplative meditative practice that that really focuses on nature and the natural world, and mm. so. Um, that that collection really explored that extensively, and and the natural world, um, wilderness is, is very much a part of my spiritual practice too. I'm actually writing a book, a prose book called Twelve Gates to Enlightenment," and so it's going to be it's it's about twelve uh, twelve strategies 
for spiritual practice taken from different spiritual traditions. And one of the chapters focuses on aesthetics, the study of beauty, and uh, and that's very much about experiencing the natural world. Mm. Michael Sauter is our guest for this part of Access Utah. He's Associate Professor of English at USU and author of the new book of poetry, House Under the Moon. You're welcome to join the conversation here at 1-800-826-1495. Five or six minutes left in the conversation. 1-800-826-1495. Or you can email us at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. We did have someone email us um, saying that, uh, just quoting here, I would love to have him walk us through some meditation. Uh, um, he's interested in the, in, the, in the process. Yeah, sure. Um, is that something that we could do? Sure. Okay. Um, let's let's walk ourselves through some uh, meditation. So the first thing to do is to sit in a comfortable uh, position with your back straight. It's important that when you're meditating that you're wide awake and you're alert, but your eyes are closed. And then usually the first thing to do is to just focus on the body and just pay attention to how you're feeling in this moment. And then breathe deeply and slowly. Notice how you're feeling on an emotional level without judging, without commenting. Just notice how you're feeling right now. And then let yourself just sink into your body. You can feel the weight of your body on your chair or on the floor. And then just let your mind be aware of your breathing. In most meditation practices, we focus on our breathing because the breathing is always happening right now in this moment. And if you think about it, you know, the past is gone. We have books about the past and recordings and memories, but the past itself is gone. And the future is not here yet. We can think about the future, but it's really not here. The only thing we ever have is this moment right now. The breath is an anchor to this moment. It's always happening right now. So when we meditate, we just follow our breath as it comes in, as it goes out. And as we do this, our mind will wander. It has a tendency to run away from present experience and to get lost in thinking, remembering, planning. When you notice your mind has wandered away, just gently, without any judgment, bring your attention back to the present moment, back to the breath. And then you can also practice this during the day. If you're sweeping the floor or doing the dishes, you can just let your attention come to your breath and focus on your hands, focus on the work you're doing without getting lost in thinking. And so this is the the fundamental practice. There are many other kinds of more advanced practices that one does, but this is the basic practice of being in the present moment because it's said that the present moment is the only thing that's real, and that's where we will discover the truth. The past is gone. The future isn't here yet. It's also where we discover our creativity. It's, it's often said that our mind is like a lake with ripples on it, and we can't really see the depths of our self until we calm the surface mind. And over time, 
you find that you can stay longer and longer in, in the present moment without your mind running off and into thinking. And the more we do that, the more we tap into tremendous wells of, of creativity and energy and uh, <clears throat> personal um, power, really, in our lives that, that are kind of suppressed by this thinking mind that's always chattering. So that's kind of a... Oh, thank intro. you. Thank you. <laughs> Excellent. And the goal is... Uh, well, get, get to the present. Get to the present. Get to the present. But that's and very hard. It's it very is, hard to get to the present. It's very hard. It's interesting. It's very simple, but it's very uh, difficult because our mind wants to run away, like I was saying, into thinking about the past or the future. <clears throat> and then the goals, well, there are very many different goals. Um, the goal can be improving your physical health, your mental health, your emotional health, or uh, your spiritual health. Mm. So, yeah. We just have a couple minutes left. I'd like to hear another poem from, uh, okay. from House Under the Moon. All righty. Um, this is one that's kind of about um, the, str- the struggle I've had between wanting to kind of be a contemplative monk and living in the world. Um, <clears throat> there's a word, sannyasi. A sannyasi is a, a Hindu person who has left the world and has devoted him or herself to meditation. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's called Fire Sermon. And, well, the poem is about the Buddha talked about, um, he talked very much about impermanence, that everything in the world is vanishing before, right before our eyes, and that we can never find lasting happiness in the, the vanishing things of the world, that we have to go deeper to find a kind of unconditioned joy, an inner joy that's not dependent on external circumstances. But anyway, so this is called Fire Sermon. The world is burning, said Heraclitus and Buddha and Jesus in his way, and before them the rishis of the Vedas. Aden and I huddle outside the tent. Orange coals, yellow flames, sapphire hold our gaze. Across the horizon, Draco flies. Hold out your hands. Feel how warm? Don't grab at the flames. The world is like this too, though I don't say that. Love with its own fire. Simone Vale found the spark in the difference between looking and eating. A sannyasi leaves home, puts on a saffron robe, becomes a walking flame. Hmm. We have time for another uh, another poem or two. Maybe okay. we could uh, re- read some more. Uh, in the meantime, well, let me uh, pull this up, um, and uh, let's get this uh, email in. Appreciate this. This is uh, from uh, Mon Gregory. Thanks for this wonderful conversation with Dr. Souter. What advice can he give for not letting technology make us so distracted? <laughs> um, well, I use technology quite a lot. I love my iPhone. And, um, you know, I do think technology can help us to, to do things lightning fast and, and can actually free up time if we don't spend our lives running trying to keep up with our technology, I guess. But, um, but it's, you know, the spiritual practice is very much a discipline. It, it very much takes daily work. And um, so I get up at 4.30 in the morning. Uh, my boys always wake up at 6.30. So I get up at 4.30 and I meditate and write in my journal and do some spiritual reading. And, uh, when I, you know, when I can do that, it really sets my, uh, kind of like sets the tone for, for the rest of my day. Um, and then just take, uh, you know, you can just take little timeouts. You're working hard on your computer. You can get a, a little mindfulness bell 
it's kind of an app, and every hour it'll just ring a tone, and you can just sit back and close your eyes for a minute or two and kind of recenter because our minds can get so carried away, and there's so much intoxicating, seductive technology out there that that you can just run away forever almost. You know, there's that funny, that funny cartoon about. Uh, a kid turns to his mother and says, I reached the end of the internet, you know? (laughs) And so it's like, it's this endless source of, um, you know, immediate gratification. And so I think it's really important to turn the technology off and kind of go into ourselves, but it's a discipline. It takes work. Mm -hmm. Uh, Especially in today's world. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Uh, Maybe one more poem. Okay. One more poem. This one um, is about my other son, Kellen. <clears throat> and it's about reading this book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, one of the most famous books about um, American Zen, I guess. And um, there's a word satori in it. Satori means an enlightenment experience. So it's called Kellen in My Lap, Five Months Old. In a circle of lamplight, I, I read again Suzuki's Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. You play my fingers like piano keys, arranging and rearranging them, finding new patterns, melodies. When you woke in the three o'clock dark, we moved out here to a room where you could play and I could work. What is Satori, Suzuki asks, the bottom of a pail broken through. Coyote, mountain lions stalk the hills above our house. Darkness holds its wing above the valley. Orion brightens January snow and down in the far fields flickers a single yellow window pane. The delight you find in my fingers, a monk has no words to name. Hmm. So that's kind of a poem about, you know, that, um, you know, whichever path you choose, a contemplative life or a family life, there are things that you gain and things that you lose. And and so there's a kind of joy that you find in family that, that you know, monks don't really experience. So. Hmm. And we'll end it there. We're out of time. House Under the Moon is the new collection of poetry. Michael Souter, the poet, also uh, English uh, professor, associate professor at uh, Utah State University. Thanks so much. Okay, thanks so much for having me. Um, And tomorrow we're going to have a uh, repeat broadcast of an interview from a couple of months ago with Stephen Ranella, meat eater, the ethics of uh, hunting and eating meat. That's uh, coming up tomorrow on Axis Utah. For uh, producer Shalane Smith-Needham, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSUFM HD1 91.5 Logan.